Let's pray together, shall we, before we begin. Father, I'm reminded tonight of the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. And Father, tonight is a celebration for us to know that we are not children of whim, and we're not children of political winds either, but we're children of the King of Kings. Hallelujah. And Father, we just acknowledge tonight that you are the one who holds history in the palm of your hand. And Father, great nations may come, but great nations also go again. But our God remains intact. And Father, I thank you that we are those who serve the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And we revere you in our hearts tonight, because we know that the day is coming when the whole heaven and all the earth will pass away. But you will remain, and your words will remain intact. Father, I pray tonight for a spirit of awe and wonder to come upon us as we study these things. Father, that indeed we should be those described in the Bible who covered their chins because they just couldn't believe the things that were going to come to pass. Those who could not speak because they were so amazed at what God was going to do. And Father, I just pray that as I speak tonight, these things may have reality. That we should see that this is not just a little picture that we're painting that actually will come to pass in 2,000 years but they are things that we will probably see in our own lifetime. Father, we thank you for the way you're revealing prophecy in these days, Lord. Thank you that the end times are upon us, and thank you that we have hope. Father, we look up because we know that the sun is dawning on this land. Hallelujah. And we know that day will come when Jesus will return in the clouds of glory, even as he was taken from the disciples' sight, so he will come again. We thank you for it, Lord. And we just say in our prayers now, Father, we just ask that Jesus may come and come soon. And yea, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And please just bless us with the fullness of your Holy Spirit tonight, that you will bring alive these things that we study. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Having now finished my studies of the tribulation, I want tonight to digress. Because tonight I want to ask the question, does Russia have a future? Now you'll notice, as we've studied the tribulation, that the political uh, scene that I have painted has had almost little or no relevance to the scene, the political scene that we see today. For example, you remember that I've actually warned during the talks on the tribulation not to think in terms of the common market for example, as fulfilling the ten-nation confederacy that we found uh, in Daniel and in other books. I've tried to say this. The Bible describes the political times that exist in the tribulation. Don't ever try and link them up with the situation you see today. Now, the reason that I have actually painted the political scene without any uh, sort of parallel with the political scene today is this, that I have studied enough history and certainly enough prophetic books to know that interpreters of the Bible have gone wrong and seriously wrong by trying to relate their own political times with what they think they've seen in the Bible. In fact, if you read prophecy books written last century, they're absolutely full of, of how the Pope plays this part and how France plays that part and how the Bible means Prussia when it refers to this nation and so on. Well, we can't do that. And in fact, if you read those books now, you really scratch your heads because you can't remember the political scene that existed when that book was written. You see, the one thing that is very interesting about studying history is this, that it gives you a knowledge of the fact that history changes very rapidly indeed. 
And yet the other thing it gives you a knowledge of is that the people who live in a particular day think that the political situation they see is always going to be the political situation of the world. Well, it's not so. The more you study history, the more you see that nations are not permanent. Top nations are not always top nations. Today, by the way, most people, if you ask them, would say, oh no, probably Russia's going to be around for, oh, millennia now as the top nation. They're so powerful, nothing's ever going to defeat them. And a few probably will say, we think America might just make it as well, but they're not quite so sure about America. The historian will say, well, if they last more than 100 years, it will be most, you know, most unusual in history. Let me give you some examples. For example, 100 years ago, if you told the people living in Europe that in 100 years' time, Prussia would no longer exist, and in fact that the majority of schoolchildren wouldn't even have heard of Prussia, they really would have found it very difficult to believe, because Prussia was a major nation. You see? But what's happened 100 years on? There's no more Prussia. All gone. Or if you'd said uh, to a group of people in 1914 that the Austro-Hungarian Empire would be gone in four years, they wouldn't have believed that either. Do you remember the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire? I wonder how many people here really do. It's only 60, 65 years I'm talking about, you see, 70 years. Well, the Austro-Hungarian Empire dominated the southeast area of Europe for about 150 years. In 1914, they had an army of 9 million men. This is 1914. Russia today has an army of 3 million men. Austro-Hungary had 9 million men, yet four years later there was no Hungarian and Austrian empire. Absolutely gone. You see? What happened? 1914, one of the uh, noblemen belonging to the royal family of Austro-Hungary was visiting a little town, insignificant little place, called uh, Sarajevo. He and his good wife went on a tour of the town, and they were passing down a certain street when suddenly a bomb went off. You know? Well, they weren't hurt. But some people were hurt. So the cars stopped, and out they got to try and help the injured. And as they were tending to those who had been injured, a man came up with a pistol and shot Franz Ferdinand and his wife dead. As a result of that, the First World War started. And four years later, when the First World War came to an end, you know, there was no more Austro-Hungarian Empire. All vanished. And instead, you had four new nations. You had Austria, you had Hungary, you had Czechoslovakia, and you had Yugoslavia. But they've only been in existence since 1918. Most people wouldn't have believed it possible, but it's happened, you see? And by the way, the prophecy books written before 1914 always had Austro-Hungary as one of the big nations mentioned in the Bible. Oh dear, oh dear. Got to be very careful doing that type of thing. Funnily enough, the more you study ancient history, the more certain of this you are. In 600 BC, the top nation around was the nation of Babylon. And most people wouldn't have believed you if you'd said that Babylon was going to be defeated. Do you know how long Babylon lasted? It lasted 60 or 70 years at the most. That's all. And you say, well, that's, that's very short. Well, isn't it amazing that both America and Russia have only been really nations on the world scene for about the same length of time, 60 or 70 years? Russia really had some power, of course, but really wasn't uh, in the place to dominate the world scene as it is today, 60 years ago. America certainly wasn't. Things have changed and have changed rapidly. Well, if they've changed rapidly in the past, do you know they're going to change rapidly again? And so when we ask, does Russia have a future, don't assume that we're going to talk about Russia always in existence. Oh no, 
Russia is actually, in, uh, when the whole of history is written, as it will be one day, Russia might get a few pages mentioned, but that's all. In fact, Assyria will probably, in God's history, take up more space than Russia will. Now, it's rather interesting. All right? So we're asking, does Russia have a future? And by asking that question, I'm also asking another question. How does the political scene that exists in the tribulation come about from the political scene that we have before us today? Now, because these are complicated questions, we've got to do a little bit of background research. All right? And so the background we need is connected with battles in the Bible, and specifically battles in the book of Revelation. So let's do some background research, and let's see that in the book of Revelation, two major battles are described. Now, one of these we've seen, and it's very easy. The first major battle that is described is the Battle of Armageddon. There it is. I have spent long enough on it not to have to go into detail tonight. Those of you who've been in the Bible studies, there have been two major Bible studies on the Battle of Armageddon, or covering the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, I think it's enough for us simply to state a few facts. The Battle of Armageddon occurs when all the nations of the world gather to fight in northern Israel. You'll remember the valley called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And at first they start fighting against one another, but do you remember what happens? Suddenly darkness falls on the land. And the darkness is broken by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And as they see him coming, all the nations of the world unite and decide they're going to fight against this one who's coming in the name of the Lord. All right? When does it occur? It occurs at the end of the period that we call the tribulation, right at the very end. If we draw out the time scale, this is what we can expect to see and what we found. We have the church on the earth, and then a day arrives when the church is removed from the earth. As soon as the church is removed from the earth, we enter a period which we call the tribulation, which lasts a period of seven years. The tribulation ends when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, what we call the second advent. And at the second advent, he establishes a thousand-year reign on the earth. So the thousand-year reign of Christ, which then comes to an end, at the judgment, the great white throne, as we called it, judgment. Now, that's the pattern. If you've been at the Bible studies, this is very easy to you. Armageddon occurs right at the end of the tribulation. Let's just see a few verses on it so that we check that we know what we're talking about. It's found in Revelation 16, but let us go to Revelation 19 and see just a few verses. This is the Battle of Armageddon. All right, and verse 11 describes the very end of the battle of Armageddon. Just read them through. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This is Revelation 19, verse 11. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God. He hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Down to verse 19, here is the battle of Armageddon itself, and I saw the beast. You remember the beast was the world ruler and will be the world ruler in these days, and he is the one who leads the armies at the battle of Armageddon. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain. And so the battle of Armageddon ends with the false prophet and the beast cast into the lake of fire. Go to chapter 20 and verse 1, and we see what happens to the devil. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. Now that's the battle of Armageddon, and we know the details of it. All right, Revelation 20 then deals with the 1,000-year period which follows the second advent. For example, if you go down to verse 6, and I'll be explaining this next time, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. Leave that for the moment. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him one thousand years. And because we take the Bible literally, that is one thousand literal years. All right? So we now go through the thousand-year period. And it's then that we see the second battle described in the book of Revelation. Let's read it. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of prison. In the next Bible study, or the one after that, we will actually be seeing why Satan is loosed. Verse 8. He shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now that's a separate battle. And can you see, this battle occurs at the end of the 1,000 years reign of Christ, and I call the second battle the Gog and Magog Rebellion. The Gog and Magog Rebellion. All right, now before we have a good look at it, I want to clear up something about Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog seem to be a pair that come up very often in conversations. You read about them in books, but I find most people extremely hazy about what Gog and Magog's are all about. Most people say, Gog and Magog, oh, that's Russia, isn't it? Oh, that it were as easy as that. No, it's not Russia, unfortunately. So let's take another, that we are in a digressionary Bible study, but let's, let's take a digression within this digression. And let's have a look at Gog and Magog, and let's understand something about them. Now, let's take the word Gog, first of all. G-O-G. It is used in three main parts of Scripture. One of them does not really concern us. The one that doesn't really concern us is in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, where a Reubenite calls his son Gog. He was looking round for a, a nice name, and he thought Gog was a pretty nice name, so he called his son Gog. 
<coughs> I suppose it's uh, equivalent of calling your son Zog in these days, I would imagine, you know, or Wayne or something like this. And he thought it was a very nice name, and so he called his son uh, Gog. Obviously, that doesn't really concern us. What He has free will. He can call his son what he pleases. That's one of the three occasions. The other two occasions are these. The name Gog is found in Revelation 20, which we've just read, and then in another passage, which is Ezekiel 38 and 39. And they're the two main parts of the scripture that contain the word Gog. There they are. Let's have a look at Magog. Magog is M-A plus the name of Gog. Magog, again, is found in three parts of scripture. Well, what parts? Well, first of all, as you know, Revelation 20, we've dealt with that, or read it just now. The next part, as you'd expect, is Ezekiel 38 and 39. But it's the third one that interests us as far as the name Magog is concerned. For the third place where Magog is found is Genesis chapter 10 and verse 2. And I should also say that that passage is quoted in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 verse 5. However, that's just a repeat. Now, if we're going to understand this, we've got to start simply. So let's start as simple as we can get by going to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 2. Genesis 10 and verse 2. All right, <clears throat> and let's go through. Now here, is, there is no mention of the name Gog, only mention of the name Magog. Genesis 10 is a fascinating chapter. In Genesis 10, God declares this, that all the nations of the world are descended from Noah. And as Bible believers, we hold to that absolutely. So if you live today on the face of the earth, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-whatever number of greats it is, grandfather is Noah, definitely. We therefore all are descended through one man, and that's Noah. Noah, however, had three sons. Here's Noah. He had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And all the nations of the world are descended from either Ham or Shem, or Japheth. And all Genesis 10 does is this. It lists all the descendants of these, these uh, boys. You see? And the marvelous thing is that the ancient historians <laughs> enable us to trace where most of these people actually went and where they live even today on the face of the earth. There are some we can't trace, and we can only make a, a, a sort of reasoned guess about. But the vast majority, we can say with some certainty where they are. All right, let's read verse 1 and verse 2. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog. There he is. And Magog was the father of the Magogites. You see, the tribe that were called the Magogites were descended from Magog. Well, who are the Magogites then? <clears throat> well, fortunately, a ancient historians tell us who the Magogites were. Remember that the ark came down on Mount Ararat in the uh, group of mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea called the Caucasus. And the nations of the world spread out from there. 
Now, it may have been that first they came down into the plain of the Euphrates, right? It's not quite clear. But once they had established themselves, then there was a separation, right, uh, all around the world, especially after the Tower of Babel, of course. Now, the Magogites were a very interesting group of people. They decided they liked the cold climate. So the Magogites spread north over the range of hills, including Ararat, and went up into the northern countries, and they actually became a group of people called the Scythians. S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N-S. The Scythians, right? These were very fierce, warlike people. And the worst thing was, because the area where they lived was so cold, whenever the weather turned nasty, they needed food. And as soon as they needed food, they had to come down south. So all of a sudden, these dwellers down in the Mesopotamian Valley, they were having a pretty nice life, you know? And all of a sudden, these Scythians would start riding in for pillage. They really wanted food and all the rest. They were tremendously uncouth people, right? They had the most dreadful habits in all the world, and they were great horsemen. And in they came, and they used to put to death anyone who stood in their way. Well, dear old Magog was the father of them all. There he was. One interesting thing, by the way, and uh, this is, this is uh, something I've had to <laughs> dig out. The group of mountains between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea are called the Caucasus Mountains. C-A-U-C-A-U-C-U-S. The Caucasus Mountains. And you know, it's rather interesting, although it doesn't sound like it, the word Caucasus comes from two Hebrew words. It comes from the word Gog and the word Chesan or Kesan. C-H-A-S-A-N. The two words, Gog and Chesan. And if you put them together, you get the word Caucasus, oddly enough. You see, after you've fiddled it a bit and made it sort of anglicized. And why did they call the group of mountains the Caucasus? Because of what these names meant. The name Gog means a high mountain. A high mountain. And the word Chesan means a fortress. And it's rather interesting that as they went over the mountain, they decided to call it a high mountain fortress. They were so impressed by the hilltops and everything that were before them, that's the name they gave to it. Chesan and Gog combined. You see? All right. Well, from this, you might say, okay, so Gog and Magog then obviously refer to the Russians. And as I've already said, no, 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 it ain't as simple as that, if you'll forgive my vernacular English. It's not as easy as that. Oh, that it were as simple as that. Do you know what happened and what has complicated it? The names Gog and Magog sort of rolled off the tongue in the ancient world. They like the named and, uh, names, and they liked especially the name Gog. You see, Gog meant a high mountain, and after some use, it changed its meaning slightly. The Hebrews did this constantly. They used to get a certain word, and through use, it used to change its meaning. You know, And after a while, the word Gog, having first meant a high mountain, then came to mean something else. It came to me mean this, mighty or gigantic or warlike. And that's what the word Gog came to mean. And because it meant that, certain great men used to like the name Gog, you see? And certain kings used to call their sons Gog. And uh, they used to think, well, when he grows up, everyone will know just who he is. His name means mighty. Wow, they're going to look up to him, you see? 
That's the type of thinking behind it. And very often, certain kings who had a minor name may change their name. They thought, well, I, my name doesn't really suit me, you know? I mean, why should I be called my name, which means a fool? That's not quite right, you see? Incidentally, when I was in America, there was a woman who'd just become born again over there whose surname is Junk, you know? A German, she's descended from a German family, and the surname was Junk, Mary Ellen Junk. She said to me, Roger, now I'm born again, I'm going to change my name, she said, because I'm not junk anymore. The Lord has made me into something much better. Well, that's the type of thinking behind this. And so they would say, well, I'm going to change my name, you know? People don't give me enough respect around here, and if I change my name, then it's going to be good. A bit like actors, you know? If you have a certain name, you're not going to go anywhere in show business. But you change your name, and as soon as you change your name, you're going to go absolutely great places. That's what they did. And a lot of people use the name Gog. Today, by the way, in the Telegraph and in the Times, occasionally are published lists of favorite Christian names, you see. And you can always see what the top ten of Christian names is. And Gog would have appeared in the ancient world. It would have been quite near the top. We have two men in the Bible whose names actually are from the, the word Gog. Two very famous men, and probably if you thought about it, you might get one of them. Do you remember a certain king of Bashan who was a giant? Deuteronomy says about him, I think it's Deuteronomy 3, that he had an iron bedstead, right? His name was Og. Og, king of Bashan. You read about him in Deuteronomy in uh, Joshua. Well, his name is from Gog, you see? And it's a form of Gog. So Gog, this would be, king of Bashan, a giant iron bedspread. Wow, he was really doing it. That was the tops, you know? <laughs> If you had an iron bedspread in those days, you were a millionaire, right? That's what it meant. Tremendous. There's Og. Most of you, I think, if you thought about it for a little time, you would get the, the name Og. There's another name. Do you remember the king who was king of Amalek, who had dealings with Saul? It's that passage where the Lord actually says that the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You see? Do you remember his name? His name was Agag. Well, Agag is simply a form of the name Gog. And so, you see, as soon as people heard of Gog and Magog, they liked those titles. And so, they started taking on the name of Gog. So, Gog began off meaning a high mountain. It then came to mean mighty, gigantic, or warlike. And then, because so many top men were taking the name, it changed its meaning again. And Gog then came to mean a ruler or a mighty leader. That's what it meant. Right, now having got Gog then, I'm just tracing how the word changed, you know. I'm saving you hours of work, you know, doing all this. You can't find this in any book. Gog, a ruler or a leader, they then noticed something about the title Magog. They noticed that Magog was M-A plus the word Gog. And M-A in Hebrew is put in front of a word to mean the land of, the land or territory of, or sometimes the people of, the people of. So can you see Gog means the leader, Magog came to mean the leader of a group of people or the leader from a certain territory. Now this meant that whenever you see the term Gog and Magog used, instead of it just referring to Russia, it means any leader and his people, Gog and Magog. And in the Bible when it's used, 
in Revelation 20 and Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll find that it always tells you who is referred to by Gog and Magog. Right? It never just says Gog and Magog, it then defines who they are. And funnily enough, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, as we'll see in a few moments, where it refers to Russia, it even there qualifies Gog and Magog to tell you that it's Russia. Now, having said all of that, we now know what Gog and Magog mean. So let's go back and see the second battle. Go to Revelation 20 again, and let's see that it's defined for us. The second battle, I'll read from verse 7 again. And when the thousand years are expired, verse 7 of Revelation 20, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's leaders and the people, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now there, Gog and Magog, who is referred to? Who is it that revolts against God here? Well, it's all the people of the world, from every nation, their leaders and their ordinary people. They all revolt against the Lord. Let's read it, verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So they all meet again around the beloved city and fire comes down and devours them. Then verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Do you remember in the first battle he was locked up? Now it's his turn to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And can you see here, this is new too. The moment the Gog and Magog rebellion has been defeated, the heaven and the earth vanish from sight. You see? In Armageddon, you remember, the Lord comes, he establishes the kingdom. Here, the earth is removed. Do you see from those that we're dealing with two separate battles, right? In case you don't, let's write six points about each battle to see that they're different. And then you'll see why this is background that we need for tonight. The first point that I'd make, Armageddon has all the nations of the world, all the nations of the world involved. Armageddon does. Well, so does Gog and Magog. So number one for Gog and Magog is all the nations of the world. It isn't just one nation. It's not a small group of nations. It's all the nations of the world gathering together. Point number two under Armageddon is it occurs before the thousand-year reign of Christ and, of course, at the end of the tribulation. End of the tribulation. The second point under Gog and Magog is it occurs at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. All right, so there is 1,000 years difference between the two. Number three, Armageddon is led by the beast and the false prophet. Number three for Gog and Magog is the Gog and Magog rebellion are led by Satan. That's the third point. Now, can you see, the first one is the same. Number two is different. Number three is different. Number four, 
Number four in Armageddon is this. Armageddon is stopped by the second advent of Jesus Christ. And number four in the Gog and Magog rebellion is the Gog and Magog rebellion is stopped by fire. Fire comes down from heaven. Number five for Armageddon. Those of you who are taking notes, you'll find afterwards, read these through and see these are definitely two different battles. Number five, at the end of the battle, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and Satan is locked up for 1,000 years. In the Gog and Magog rebellion, number five is Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Satan is cast into the lake of fire and it clearly says where the beast and the false prophet already are. Now there's a difference. Okay, number six then. After the battle of Armageddon, the earth still exists. It still exists because Christ establishes his reign upon the earth. The earth still exists, but number six, under Gog and Magog rebellion, the earth and the heaven removed. They're cleared away, ready for the establishment of the new heaven and new earth. Now, can you see these are two separate battles? Now, with those clearly in our mind, we're now ready to turn to Ezekiel 38 and 39, where we see a battle described. So turn to Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39. We're now ready to see what battle this is. Now, the reason I've done this is this, that Bible interpreters disagree about where Ezekiel 38 and 39 go. Some say, including, by the way, Hal Lindsey, who wrote that excellent book, The Late Great Planet Earth. That's a super book, you see. Well, in there, he says that Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes the Battle of Armageddon. That's what he says. Others disagree. Frederick Tatford, right, the prophetic witness man, and a super fellow. I mean, if ever you want good books on the minor prophets, you just get hold of his series on the minor prophets. <laughs> really excellent, he's a thorough scholar, he says, no, 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 Hal Lindsay is very good, he says, but he gets it wrong. Ezekiel 38 and 39 can't possibly describe the Battle of Armageddon, no. He says, Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe the Gog and Magog rebellion. That's what he says. So he says it comes under number two, the Gog and Magog rebellion. And then there is a third group of uh, Bible students, including Charlie Clough, who uh, say, no, it doesn't describe Armageddon, and it doesn't describe Gog and Magog, it describes a separate battle altogether. Now, we have to decide what the truth is. And if it does describe a third battle, we've also got to try and understand where this battle occurs, you see? So let's begin, shall we, by going through this. Now, obviously, I don't have time tonight to go through these in detail, and I'll be dealing with chapter 38 and half of chapter 39. And I would ask you to complete chapter 39. It's fairly straightforward. So let's begin Ezekiel chapter 38 and beginning verse 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, son of man is the title of a prophet. Son of man, he says, 
set thy face against, which means turn your back upon, have nothing to do with them anymore so that the people know I'm against them. Turn thy face against, Gog the land of Magog, and then it goes on to describe who he's talking about. Notice what it says in the authorized version. The chief prince, it says, of Meshech and Tubar. If you have an RSV there, it reads rather differently. Does anyone here have an RSV in front of them? No one? Excellent. Um, no, actually the RSV is quite good, yes. The RSV there says this. It gives the name Meshech and Tubal, but instead of the chief prince, it says the word Rosh, R-O-S-H. And the word Rosh means the chief prince. And the RSV has said, no, it's a name, so they've left it in, and the AV have translated it. But in fact, it should be this. Gog, the land of Magog, Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. And the reason these three names are given is to tell us clearly who Gog and Magog are in this instance. All right. Again, it's easy. If you know ancient history, you can define who these people are. Rosh, first of all. We know from ancient history that Rosh was the name given to the northern lands of Russia. Not Western Russia, but to the northern plain of Siberia and the central plains, you know, around the three big rivers that run there. Okay? And that is the area that was called Rosh, and it's from the word Rosh that we get the word Rus, R-U-S, and it's from the word Rus that we get the word Russia. So there's the first thing. So Rosh here or as our Bible has got it, the chief prince locates it as being the northern and central plain of Russia. The next name that is used is the word Meshech, M-E-S-H-E-C-H. And the ancient historians uh, changed this word from Meshech to Mushki, M-U-S-H-K-I, Mushki. And Mushki was the name, for example, that the Assyrians gave a certain group of people. And the Mushki went up again to the north, but also slightly to the west. And it's from the word Mushki we get two words that we use. Muscovy, M-U-S-K-O-V-Y. It's a type of duck, isn't it? Muscovy duck, you see. Muscovy, still in use today, and we also have the word Muscovite, M-U-S-C-O-V-I-T-E, Muscovite. They're both descended from the word Mushki there. And a famous city is named after this people. Well, I'm not giving any house points away, you know, or any prizes away at all for guessing which one. Meshek. Mushki, Muscovy, Muscovite, and Moscow. There it is. Moscow. And Moscow is today, of course, the capital of Russia. It may interest you to know, those of you who don't know any Russian history, that it was Ivan the Terrible, so-called because he was so terrible. He was excellent king, of course, but he was rather vicious and so he was called Ivan the Terrible. It was actually Ivan the Terrible who changed the name of Russia. You see, up to the time of Ivan the Terrible, Russia was quite small, and he called it Muscovy. That was the name that he gave his nation. 
But under Ivan the Terrible, they started expanding to the east, and they took over the plain called Rosh, and he was the one who called the nation Russia rather than Muscovy, all right? And, of course, he was led by God to do it. Okay, he took over the Central Plain and the Siberian Plain, and so we get the name Russia with its capital of Moscow. Then we come to Tubal, and Tubal uh, refers to the group of people who went to the east of Russia, or Asiatic Russia, as we would call it. And isn't it interesting that for many years, the eastern capital of Russia was called Tobolsk, T-O-B-O-L-S-K, Tobolsk, coming from the name Tubal. Well, you see, God's trying to get a message over to us. Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshek, Tubal, what's he trying to say? Look, don't misinterpret this. If you only understand one of them, understand who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Russia. 500 years ago, they couldn't believe that two vast chapters like this was devoted to such a minute group of people. Today, we understand what it's all about. You see? Tremendous. This is a prophecy against Russia. Right, now verse 3. Here is what Ezekiel says. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, O mighty one, I happen to be against you, he says. And verse 4, I will turn thee back, which means he will direct his course, I will put hooks into thy jaws. Now let's just stop there. The Assyrians were a very cruel people, and whenever they captured a slave, do you know what they used to do? They didn't used to handcuff them like the American police do and the British police. No, they didn't do that at all. They didn't put a noose around their neck either. They liked something a bit more gory than that. They put a hook into their jaw, up from underneath, and it used to hook through over their front teeth or if they were careful, or through their front teeth if they weren't careful. And this hook used to be a ring which actually went right the way through their bottom jaw. Now, when you've got something in a sensitive place like that, you go where the person holding the other end goes. And they used to have thousands of slaves, all with a hook through their jaw, and used to lead them by their jaw. They never used to give any opposition at all, you see? And God simply says, all right, he says, you know what I'm talking about. He's using the idiom of the day. I am going to lead you, and you will follow me where I go, he says. I will turn thee back, I will put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Now, I'm not going to deal with that because in past studies we've seen how there'll be a, a degrading in armaments. And we've actually dealt with this and seen why this can be taken literally. It may not be literal, but it can be taken literally. So I refer you to my tape on literal or not at that point, or the tape I did, I think it was the second advent when I actually covered this. All right? Leave verse 5, 6, and 7. We'll be coming back to those. In verse 4, God declares, I will lead thee, and go on to verse 8 where we're told where God will lead Russia. Verse 8, let me read the whole verse. After many days, thou shalt be visited. In the latter years shalt thou come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, 
but it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And this is a statement that Israel would be scattered among the nations, but the day was coming when they were coming back into the land. And you know, wonderful Bible believers for the last thousand years have quoted this passage to prove Israel would definitely come back into the land. They've often been laughed at, especially by people who believe that Israel is the church. And they'd say, no, Israel is back in the land, here's the church. Oh no. And these people have said, no, the church may be wonderful, but the day has come when Israel literally will be brought back into the land. We live in a marvelous day. Since 1948, it's true. Imagine that, 32 or 3 years ago, it came to pass. Really thrilling. All right, they came back. But look at the description that is brought back from the sword. And at the end, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And here we see a picture of Israel in peace and security. Now, bear that in mind, because we'll be seeing it a little later. Verse 9, thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. This is Russia. Thou shalt go up and you'll be like a storm, thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall come to pass, verse 10, that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And in verse 11, we have what the Russian, and specifically what the Russian leaders are going to think. I'll tell you this, they're already thinking it, right? A professor who is professor of uh, chemical engineering at Salford University, and a lovely Christian, was out on a chemical engineering conference in Russia, and he had a wonderful interpreter, a young man, fair-haired, good-looking young man. And every day they were taken to the conference, and every day taken back to their hotel, and it was goodbye. And he, being a, a Christian, wanted to share his faith with this young man. He was a brilliant interpreter. And this man said, oh, I just love to share my faith so that he knows I'm not just a professor of chemical engineering, I'm also a Bible believer. And one day the interpreter said to him, how do you spend your afternoons? And the professor said, well, just in my room. He said, if you leave your room, go back down the back staircase. I'll meet you at the back door and I'll take you around and show you the sights of Moscow. And the professor said, okay, you see? And because, and the reason he did it was he wanted to preach the gospel to this young man. So up they went, they started looking at the sites, and suddenly the professor turned on him and said, look, I've got to tell you something. I am a professor of chemical engineering, but the greatest thing in all my life is the fact that I'm a Christian, and that I found the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Lord and my Savior, and that he died for the sins of the whole world. And the man started to cry, the young man. And he opened his shirt, and he was wearing a crucifix. And he took out the crucifix and showed it to the professor. And he said, I too am a Christian. He said, and I've brought you out this afternoon so I could tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't see the sights of Moscow. They went down to see the underground church. <laughs> Hallelujah. And the young man said that he used to belong to the KGB. And that he was so appalled by what was going on that he just had to ask to be moved from the KGB. And he told this professor, he said they planned to take the Middle East. They planned to go down Afghanistan, Iran, right down to the Persian Gulf. And he said, and they won't be stopping there. They'll be going on to Israel. And this is only a few years ago. The Russians are already thinking it. And isn't it, what a wonderful book the Bible is. It doesn't just tell you what people do, it tells you what they think and tells you what they think 2,500 years before they think it. 
That is the wonderful quality that we call foreknowledge. God knows what we're going to think next week. Absolutely thrilling. Look what they think. Verse 11. And thou shalt say, I will go up, and look at the description of Israel here. It's fascinating, this. I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. And the description of Israel is this. They don't have any defenses at all. They have no defensive walls. They have no locks on their doors at all. They're utterly in peace and secure. They don't even have a standing army at this time. Now, when I read that verse, verse 11, I realized one thing immediately. This is not a description of the Battle of Armageddon. How do I know that? Well, we know that before the Battle of Armageddon, the Jews are far from being peaceful. The Jews are in terrible turmoil. Do you remember? The last half of the tribulation is the worst possible time for the Jews. They have the most terrible persecution thrown at them. And they certainly do not know peace. They're fleeing for their lives to the hills. Others are in Jerusalem trying to find safety. So what do we know? The description of chapter 38 cannot be the Battle of Armageddon. No, 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 no. And at that point, having, by the way, held with Hal Lindsay for years that it was the Battle of Armageddon, I had to say, I cannot see it. All right. Well, is it number two? Well, let's read on and let's see. So Israel's at peace here. Verse 12. To take a spoil means they're after some riches, especially the riches of the Dead Sea. The potash, the magnesium, all the other things found there. And to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. And verse 13 is one of the most fascinating verses you can find anywhere in Scripture. This describes certain nations who object to what Russia is doing. And the description is very interesting and tells us something. Now let me just read it right through, verse 13. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to take a great spoil? Now, who are these nations? Sheba refers to the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. Right? That is Sheba. Dedan refers to the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. And today, in today's terms, we would say this is talking about Saudi Arabia. And this is interesting because even though it doesn't say here that Saudi Arabia won't be communist, what we do know is it won't be under Russian domination. It might be communist, but if it is communist, it will be an independent form of communism. I think, however, this passage more or less hints that they won't even be communist, Saudi Arabia. We'll have to wait and see. They certainly are not the henchmen of the Russians. All right, that's Sheba and Dedan. And look at this. And the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof. What's Tarshish? Now, if you go away and look up in a reference book, Tarshish, they'll all say it's southern Spain. That's what all the reference books will tell you. I don't agree with that, because, you see, having done research into Tarshish, I know this, that the word Tarshish didn't mean Spain. It meant the western limit of the then-known world. That's what Tarshish meant. 
Now, the Mediterranean, of course, was vast and had terrible storms, but there were a group of people living in Lebanon who were called Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians used to trade right round the Mediterranean. For example, in Carthage or Tunisia, they had a post. And Spain, they had trading settlements, right? Okay, the, the gates of Gibraltar, or the Straits of Gibraltar, were, as far as the Hebrews knew, the limit. But they weren't actually the western limit of the then known world. The Straits of Gibraltar used to be called the Pillars of Hercules, you know? But do you know something? That the Phoenicians used to go through the Straits of Gibraltar, out into the Atlantic, and they used to trade with a certain group of islands that exist on the very westernmost part of Europe. And these islands may surprise you. No, it's not the Faroe Islands. It's the British Isles. And it's rather interesting because I'm often asked, is England? No, I'm asked more often, is America in the Bible? Well, it looks as if Britain certainly is in the Bible. Tarshish was certainly the western limit of the then known world. And the trade that used to be carried on with the British Isles used to consist of tin, silver, lead. These are the things we used to mine. And they used to bring in forms of, of garments, you know, sold uh, in the eastern end of the Mediterranean. And today, archaeological sites are revealing these uh, garments and the bracelets and things that come from the Asiatic world. It's rather interesting. Here we have an interesting reference to the British Isles and specifically to the nation then that was trading, which was actually the southern portion of England, trading with the Phoenicians. And you know, the Bible, as, as we know from our studies of uh, Daniel 7 and so on, often relates to countries according to the symbol used for the country. What's the, the symbol used for Britain? Well, it's a lion. We talk about the British lion, also the bulldog, but I don't know that they knew what a bulldog was in these days. Never been able to find reference. If you know anything about bulldogs in the ancient world, please let me know. I ought to write to that woman who trains dogs. I've forgotten her name now, right? The Lion of England, or the British Lion, is a well-known symbol for Britain. And notice what it goes on to say. And the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof. And I take this to mean the young lions as the Commonwealth. And specifically, I would say, Canada, and Australia, and New Zealand, and it may even include the United States of America. Now, isn't that a relief? So that when I'm asked, is the USA in the Bible, well, just is the answer. The Bible does not say whether America has a future or not, but they might just be mentioned here, which is interesting, you see. And notice, it's Sheba and Dedan and Tarshish and the young lions thereof who object to what Russia's doing. But don't you start getting proud about this. We don't do anything about it. This is the tragedy of this passage. We don't actually help Israel. All we do is what I say, we beat our gums. That's all. We make the right noises. But you know, isn't this just like us, actually? When the Russians went into Hungary, what did we do? We just talked about it and objected. We didn't do anything about it. And that was 1956. In 1959, when the Dalai Lama of Tibet appealed for help, what did we do? Absolutely nothing. We just said, oh, isn't that bad? You know? And that's it. When the Russians went into Czechoslovakia, 1968, what did we do? Absolutely nothing. We just said how disgusting it was. And when they went into Afghanistan, oh, terrible uproar, yes. What happened? Nothing. Staggering, you see. And we're still doing it. 
of this particular part. And here they are marching into Israel. And what do we do? We just uh, comment on it. Look what we say. Art thou come to take a spoil? Hey, Russia, why are you going into Israel? No, we only want to know, sir. Don't want to do it. No, no. Just tell us why you're going in there. Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? And that's it. And in they go, free hand. Verse 14. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, the end days, not right then. And I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. Now what does he mean? Look, he calls it O Gog, and it's a pun on the name Gog, O mighty one, but you are going to show who I am, Gog, because you're going to get into the land of Israel, and then I'm going to start fighting against you. Mighty though you are, you're going to be nothing compared to me. And he says that the nations of the world will suddenly come to Gog consciousness. doesn't mean they're all going to be saved, but they'll all begin thinking, could this be God? And the Israelites especially, the Jews, they'll all be saying, God delivered us. And they will be at that point, not receiving Christ necessarily, but be at that point when they know that there is a God who still fights for Israel. It's the first step to accepting the Savior. Verse 17, Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I will bring thee against them? Now before I go on, let me make this point. How many nations are coming into Israel here? It's not the nations of the whole world. It's not. It's Russia and a few of its allies, but it's no more. You see? And what does this tell us? Well, first, again, it confirms it can't be Armageddon, because the first point in Armageddon is all the nations of the world will be gathered together. But do you see what it also tells us? It can't be the Gog and Magog rebellion, because all the nations of the world are involved in that. This does not deal with all the nations. It deals with Russia and a few of its allies. We are able, for this and a few other reasons in a moment, to say, no, it's not Armageddon, and it's not Gog and Magog either. And that is why I hold to the position this is a brand new battle, right? All we've got to see now is when it occurs, and I think it's quite stunning. All right, let's see the defeat of Russia. Verse 19, verse 18, I beg your pardon, verse 18 it shall come to pass at that same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. Russia has been against God for years and years and years, and now here is God's chance to judge them. And he will. Verse 19, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. And what does a great shaking mean? Don't think it's poetic. It means an earthquake. That's what it means, a great shaking. And the whole, well, a vast part of the army of Russia marches into Israel, and they think, boy, this is easy. Simple maneuver. Here they are, they haven't got any army, they've got no one to defend them. Tarshish is beating its gums. May not be Mrs. Thatcher, but anyway, whoever it is, 
they're just uh, asking me why I'm going in. Well, I'll take a couple of days to reply, and by that time I'll have mopped up this crew. They march in, and all of a sudden God says, right, uh, I'm going to start fighting. And do you know the weapons that God uses in holy war? He uses the earth, which is on his side anyway. You see? And they're just marching in. He waits for the army to get there, and he says, right, okay, earth, do your stuff. <laughs> and the whole place starts shaking, 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 right? Nothing like an earthquake to upset battle plans, <laughs> you see? Not just a little shaking, this is a massive shaking, right? It shakes the whole of the land of Israel, causing uh, appalling things. By the way, one of the things that happens is the Mosque of Omar collapses, right? In Jerusalem at this time. That automatically happens. Oh, except I haven't located the time, but I, I'm just telling you the preview, <laughs> preview of things coming in a second, right? An earthquake occurs in the whole of the land. Verse 20, so that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. Isn't that amazing? Shake? Yes, because the earth's shaking. <laughs> and why is the earth shaking? Because of the presence of the Lord. They're shaking at his presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall all fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. That's avalanches, landslides and everything. And I will call for a sword against him through all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. That is absolute panic breaking out in the land. There it is. And suddenly these well-trained troops suddenly turn and start fighting one another. Anyone who stands in their way, they'll slay them just to get out of this land. Verse 22, I will plead against him with pestilence, which is illness. Right? These are diseases that come upon them. And with blood, there'll be bloodshed. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain, worse than any monsoon that you may have seen. The rain is going to topple down at this time. Yeah, the atmosphere also is under God's control. And down it comes. And great hailstones, two foot across and more. Right? Not much you can do against such weapons, you know. Fire, that may be a reference to volcanic activity, and brimstone pouring down upon these armies. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know I am the Lord. That's God consciousness. Chapter 39, and we'll take just a few verses of this. Therefore thou, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, that's Russia. Verse 2, And I will turn thee back, and leave but the sixth part of thee. One-sixth of the army of Russia will survive this holocaust. That would mean, by the way, about 350,000 men. That's about the size of the British Army today, or the British Armed Forces today. And that's all that Russia's going to be left with. And isn't that interesting? There are some left. Now that proves it's not Armageddon and it's not Gog and Magog. In Armageddon, of course, there's a judgment that occurs. They're certainly not just left. And in Gog and Magog, the whole heaven and earth are destroyed, you see? Five-sixths of the army is taken away and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand, will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. He's going to disarm them. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands, and the people that is with thee. 
all going to die in Israel. Five-sixths of the Russian army dead in Israel. And I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, to the beasts of the field to be devoured, that they're scavengers, and they'll come. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord. And verse 6 describes that his judgment will also hit the Russian homeland. Those who dwell in Russia will think, oh, we're miles away from the battle, you see? And so they'll say, fine, we'll put our feet up, we can relax. Oh no, they can't relax. Look what happens, verse 6. I will send a fire on Magog, that's the land of Gog. Even the homeland is going to feel my judgment. And among them that dwell carelessly, without a care in the world, in the isles. Now, in the isles is literally in the coastland area. You see, there are going to be people in Russia who think, well, our army's not doing so well, but we're miles away, right up here, we're just fishing, carrying on fishing the same as ever, just doing our bit of forestry or mining or whatever it is, but we can relax, you see? And he's saying, oh no, there is going to be fire even in the homeland, Russia, because I'm not going to have you around as a major nation anymore. Verse 7, So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One, in Israel. And let's now just deal with the, the last few verses that I'm going to deal with, which actually locate the time period of this battle. So let's see if this is a third battle, when is it going to occur? The answer is given in the next few verses. Look what happens. Verse 8. Behold, it is come, and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. Right? In other words, in my counsels, it has been already purposed, it will come to pass. Verse 9. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, and the handstaves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. There's a reference to seven years after the defeat of Russia. Now, of course, uh, if there is a downgrading in, in weapons, then, of course, they will be set fire to. But if there's not a downgrading, how do we explain that they'll actually be set on fire? Well, Bible scholars have come up with two explanations. One, that it's going to be the oil and the grease on the weapons that will actually burn. I don't find that very satisfactory. And Frederick Tapford actually says, and I think little tracks out, actually say that the weapons in these days are going to be made not of metal, but of a brand new material. And they may be right. We just really don't know at this point. The new material, by the way, is called lignostone, L-I-G-N-O-S-T-O-N-E. It's rather interesting because this material has been developed um, so that it doesn't interfere with radar it's to a type of material that, because it's non-metallic, doesn't appear on radar screens. It won't set off uh, magnetic mines or anything like this. And minesweepers today are built of wood. It may be that they'll be built of this material before too long. Lignostone is simply beech wood, um, which has been compressed. I think it's about a thousand pounds per square inch, and impregnated with resin. And it's very strong. It has the the strength of steel. You see. And they're just trying to make weapons from this material, lignostone. The thing about it is, it doesn't appear on radar, but it does burn. And if they do make weapons of this material, 
then in fact it will mean that this can be very literally interpreted and that there will indeed be fire, fire there'll be fuel supplied uh, through the burning of these weapons. Um, by the way, lignostone is used today in the electrical industry. You see, it's used where uh, a metal would actually cause problems uh, for the working of a particular electrical machine. So there it is, lignostone. I think it's Dutch. I'm not absolutely certain about that. Okay, there it is, but look at it. They burn them seven years. And if we read the next verse, so that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any out of the forest, for they shall burn the weapons with fire, they shall spoil those that spoil them, and rob those that rob them, saith the Lord God. Now this means when Russia is defeated, let's say this is the period where Russia is defeated. Here it is. And Russia is defeated there. What it means is that history goes on for another seven years. And in that time, they're burning the weapons. Now, first of all, that can't be Gog and Magog. Because, you see, the moment the enemies are destroyed in the Gog and Magog rebellion, the heaven and the earth flee away. So there isn't seven years left to burn the wood or whatever it is uh, in Israel. So it definitely cannot be Gog and Magog. But can it now be Armageddon? The answer is no. You see, if it were Armageddon, it would mean that for seven years into the kingdom of Christ, or the millennium, they were busy burning these weapons, you see. That's not so. Because we know, and we'll know next time when we talk about the climate of the earth in the kingdom that is coming, it is the Lord who completely restores the earth. The climate is absolutely perfect, you see. Definitely, these seven years cannot relate to Armageddon nor to Gog and Magog. There's another reason as well why it can't be either of those two. Just read on. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place thereof, graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers. Now this is a reference to a valley, right, which will actually be in Israel. The location is not known yet, but travelers will go through that valley. These are the passengers. And there'll be so many dead there, and so many dead bodies going to be buried there, that actually they'll have to uh, hold their noses as they go through. You see? Okay? And because uh, the stench of rotting flesh will be so bad. And there they shall bury Gog and all his multitude. They shall call it the Valley of Haman Gog. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them, that they may cleanse the land. Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown, the day that I shall be glorified, saith the Lord. All right? And they shall sever out men of continual employment. Right? They're going to actually employ men to do this all the time, who will pass through the land to bury with the passengers those that remain upon the face of the earth to cleanse it. After the end of seven months shall they search. You see? Now, you've got seven months. Again, it can't be Armageddon, because it is the Lord who will restore the land. He won't expect Israel to restore it in seven months or anything like that. He will restore it. And again, it can't be Gog and Magog rebellion. There is no land left for the seven months. All right, when then is it? Well, the answer is it has to be at least seven years before the Battle of Armageddon. There is no other time when it can be. And so what does that mean? Let's say, let's say it's exactly seven years before Armageddon. In fact, it could be seven years or a bit more before Armageddon. Now, Armageddon comes at the end of the seven years tribulation. Well, what's seven years before Armageddon then? Well, it's at the time of the rapture of the church or just before it. 
And the third battle, it's rather interesting, comes either just before the rapture of the church or at the time that the church is raptured. And beloved, what this means is we may very well see this day. Absolutely wonderful. Before our very eyes, we might see it come to pass. Already we are seeing things moving in that direction in a very real and a very wonderful way. You see? We may see this day. In fact, this is going to be a thing that causes the whole church, if we are still around, absolutely get on tiptoe. They'll suddenly realize the rapture's absolutely at their doorsteps. Praise God, and they'll be ready for it. All right. Let's see if there's some pointer to the fact it is going to occur in our day. There are pointers. Go back to Ezekiel 38, 5, 6, and 7. Ezekiel 38, 5, 6, and 7 where we have a description of the allies of Russia. Let me tell you something. Twelve years ago, this would have been considered nonsense. Right? Look at the allies of Russia. Let's take verse 5. Persia, which is Iran. Next one, Ethiopia. The next one, Libya. Before 1969, these were three pro-Western nations. Right? They were all monarchies, and in fact, it's rather interesting. The Shah of Iran was called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That was his title. The King of Ethiopia, who was, of course, Haile Selassie, was called the Lion of Judah because it was said he was descended from the match of the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. You see, that's what they said. He was certainly the king of the oldest Christian nation in Africa. And the king of Libya, I'll give you his name, I don't think he had any title, I can't find one anyway, but his name was Idris, I-D-R-I-S, Idris I. And they were tremendously pro-Western, tremendous uh, oil exploration done by the British in Libya, right? It was a common thing for people to leave university and go to Libya and actually dig up oil or whatever you do to it, you see, or drill it, you see. Suddenly, things started changing. And incidentally, I read a booklet the other day on this passage written in 1950, and he, he said, it, it cannot be that Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are literally meant here. Why? Because they're so pro-Western. And you see, he was making the error that I said I had tried to avoid. He was trying to link the present-day circumstance with what was said in the Bible. You can't do it. History changes too fast, you see. By the time that book was off the printing presses, it was coming to pass. What happened? The first thing was 1969. Libya suddenly becomes communist. King Idris was visiting Turkey. The next thing he knew, a man called Gaddafi had uh, established a brand new rule in Libya. This is only 11, 12, 13, no, 69. Yes, that's right. Only 12 or so years ago, you see. A brand new regime established. And Libya today is communist. Right? It is a Russian satellite today. Staggering. Oh, yes, but Libya's gone, but the others won't. Haile Selassie? Never. What happened to Haile Selassie? Arrested. He died while in arrest. And Ethiopia today is a communist nation. Very surprising, you see. And it's only two years ago now that the Shah of Iran actually was forced to leave his homeland. Amazing. He was so strong. His army was immense. The Americans gave, gave him weapons that they had for their own army, and he had more of them. 
you know? And we all thought, great, well, at least the Shah's in there. We're going to be all right. Oh, dear, oh, dear, history changes, you know? One year, I think it was 1977, everyone used to worship even his shadow. And a book came out about him saying he must be the most popular monarch on the face of the earth. I didn't believe it then, of course. I believed that Elizabeth was the most popular monarch, of course. <laughs> but I thought he might be the second most popular monarch, you see. One year later, he was actually having to take President Carter by helicopter because they couldn't ride through the streets in a car. Amazing, the downfall of the Shah. And today we see that he's been replaced by a fundamentalist Islamic regime, which at the moment is tottering, you know? And I'll tell you, the most organized party in Iran today is the Communist Party. And we're going to see, according to this passage, the Communists take over in Iran. But isn't it wonderful in one respect? And that is this, that when Jesus returns, he's going to be the only one called the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and the only one called the Lion of Judah. Praise his wonderful name. You see? It's come to pass. Verse 6. Gomer and all his bands. Who's Gomer? Gomer was the chap who settled in Eastern Europe. These are the Eastern European nations. What are they? They are the Warsaw Pact today. They are the satellites of Russia. This was written 2,500 years ago. Staggering. All his bands. And this one gives us a bit of a problem. The house of Togomar of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. Togomar refers to eastern Turkey or Armenia here. And it may be that these people are already incorporated in Russia because the people who live around the Caucasus may be the people referred to just here. We're going to have to wait and see, right, over that. But there it is. But can you see, these are the allies, and we are able to read this passage today, and without changing it, without reading anything into it, we can say, well, it is. There's Libya, there's Ethiopia, there's Iran. It's coming to pass. I believe we're going to see this, and soon, because I believe the Lord is coming for his church very soon. Praise God. Okay, what should we expect? Well, let me just paint one or two things. First of all, we should expect that Israel and the nations around will become a demilitarized zone. You see, Israel dwells in peace without an army. And it may be that the soaring inflation at the moment causes the Israelis to abandon their army. And it may be that the Americans will agree to police this area. So we may get a demilitarized zone right the way around. If that comes to pass, by the way, know that Russia is the next one in there, right? That's the thing we ought to be looking for. Then Russia will march in. Russia and communism will be destroyed in Israel. And beloved, what's going to happen when Russia and communism are destroyed? There's going to be a power vacuum. And into that power vacuum, it's going to be the revived Roman Empire, the nations around the Mediterranean, who step in and become the new power bloc. With Russia out of the way, the whole of the configuration of Europe is going to change, you see? And it's going to be quite spectacular. And this man of sin will arrive. He is going to become the world dictator. How can um, this man of sin become world dictator when Russia is still around? The answer is Russia will not be in the tribulation a brand new political orientation. It answers every problem as far as we are concerned when we try and look at the political setup of the tribulation. And last but not least, the Mosque of Omar will be destroyed 
and the Arabs will have no one to back them in their claims to rebuild another mosque on that place. And the leader of the revived Roman Empire is going to come in and he will say, right, we are going now to build a temple on that site as part of my treaty with you. What response do we have? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah.